Thank you so much for downloading today's episode. I'd like to thank you for listening in on today's podcast of God's Righteous Decree. My name is Carl Krenzel, and I'll be sharing a message with you today that'll help you, I hope. I'd like to take a few moments, my brothers and sisters, to share with you the only thing that I know to share. I may never have another opportunity to share with you the importance of this message, and you may never have another opportunity to listen to a message like this. I happen to believe that God is sovereign, and as such, your listening to this today was predestined. The message I'd like to share with you today is called The King and His Kingdom. And if you've got your Bible today, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 4, verse 28 through 37, and while you're turning there and getting your place... I'll ask that you would pray for me. Uh, As many of you know, I preached many revivals down in the South early in my life as a Pentecostal revivalist, and I have a problem with keeping things within 20 minutes. So with your help, I'll stick to the time. And, And if you don't happen to have your Bible while you're driving or something like that, don't worry, I'll read the, the Bible for you. And hopefully by now you've got your place. And if you do, Let's look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 28 through 37. Hear now the words of the true and living God. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass, like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him what? Have you done? At the same time, 
my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Sovereign Lord, the God of heaven and earth, you alone are king of all men. You alone determine the rise and fall of nations, kingdoms, and peoples. We come to you humbly today, Lord, and not in our own strength, but through the blood of Jesus, who paid our debt of sin, that we might approach you this day. Send us your Holy Spirit to guide and teach us. Cause me to speak your word in truth and with the anointing that can only come from you. Let me be decreased and forgotten, while the holy name of Jesus be increased and exalted. For the glory of your name we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In today's scripture reading, <clears throat> we find a curiosity. A pagan king of antiquity named Nebuchadnezzar adding to our holy scriptures. For in the book of Daniel, we find King Nebuchadnezzar relating a story of a nightmarish dream. A dream so bold in character, so terrifying in nature, that a call is sent forth in the middle of the night for the wisest of men throughout the land to come and interpret the dream. All the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and even the astrologers stood speechless before him, unable to divine its meaning. Finally, Daniel is summoned, and he gives the explanation that a decision had been made and a sentence had been passed upon King Nebuchadnezzar. For seven years, he would lose his kingdom, riches, friends, family, security, his homes, but worst of all, he would lose his mind. My brothers and sisters, I don't know if you've ever been there, but trust me, you could lose all the things of the world, but losing your mind, losing the very grip on what you know to be real, the very thing that grounds you and helps you determine what to do for seven years. Unfortunately, I've been there and it's not a pretty place. Now, when Daniel realizes the horrific reality of this judgment, he prays that the king breaks off from his sins by practicing righteousness and, and asks that he show mercy to the oppressed so that there might be a lengthening of his prosperity. Now, I know that you've never been in King Nebuchadnezzar's place. 
you know, full of pride and ego and proud of your own accomplishments. King Nebuchadnezzar, however, had a lot of pride, was full of ego, and, and had plenty of accomplishments to be proud of. I mean, after all, he was in the great northern palace in mighty Babylon. I mean, this is the largest city of all antiquity. He could look from his curved palace windows and see over 2,000 acres of Babylonian citizenry, culture, and history. On his daily walks of the, the roof of his palace, he could see the mighty Euphrates River surging through the middle of the fortified city. He could hear the daily offerings to the false god Marduk being offered in the temple next to the seven-storied ziggurat in Tamanki, As he would walk through the city that he himself had enlarged, he would see the magnificent Ishtar gate with its blue imported stone adorned with images of bulls and dragons to astonish those who passed by. How could this even be possible? The, the spirit of the gods was, was in this Belteshazzar. I mean, King Nebuchadnezzar himself had witnessed the miracle of the fourth man in the fire. He himself had decreed that if anyone should speak anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they should be torn limb from limb and that their houses should be laid in ruins. It seemed unlikely that this Hebrew would know anything about him. After all, he was the mighty King Nebuchadnezzar. Royal blood descended from a sovereign line. Why, his own father, King Nabopolassar, had helped destroy the hated Assyrian Empire. King Nebuchadnezzar himself was described as the was called the destroyer of nations by the prophet Jeremiah. If anyone could determine their fate or their own course in life, he was going to be King Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody could tell him what to do or how to live. And it certainly wasn't going to be this Hebrew slave that his armies had carried off into captivity. If Daniel's God wasn't powerful enough to deliver him from Nebuchadnezzar's hand, well, then the king had little to fear from Daniel's God. But this is where we pick up on God's story. His story records that King Nebuchadnezzar was the mightiest king of all Babylon, the richest and perhaps most antithetical of kings depicted in the Bible. He certainly isn't King David <laughs> or King Solomon, but King Nebuchadnezzar has his own chapter in the Bible, and for good reason. You see, we as men in particular, we get examples from the kings of the Bible. For example, from King David, we learn about facing fear and adversity and a failure and sin. Yet, we see the example of God's everlasting promise and love in King David. In King Solomon, 
we see an example of wisdom and learning. There's enormous passages of Scripture dealing with him and his wisdom, lessons that we can learn from even today. And yet, in this one chapter, I believe God used this example of a pagan king to demonstrate a few lessons for us. The first lesson that we learn from this passage is about the utter dominion of God. Now, dominion simply means that one has power over something, supremacy or stewardship. And when he says that God's dominion is an everlasting dominion, well, he's saying that God himself has the supremacy, the stewardship, responsibility for, and power over everything. Psalm 1016 says that the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. You see, we tend to think that we in and of ourselves have ownership or rights to this land. However, the scriptures are clear on this point. It's by God's sovereign hand that we're even allowed to inhabit the land. And while the words were still in his mouth, taking glory for the things that God had given him, the Bible records that judgment had come. It takes seven years of madness, solitude, lack, and want. Seven years of pain, misery, and hunger before King Nebuchadnezzar, the mightiest pagan king on earth, this destroyer of the nations, to bow the knee and accept God's sovereignty. As King Nebuchadnezzar lifts up his eyes towards heaven in repentance and tears, he tells us that God's kingdom endures from generation to generation. He remembers that Daniel told him that God changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He remembers the first dream he had about a rock cut from a mountain, cut without human hands, and that this stone broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and yes, even the gold, this stone that struck the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. And he understands for the first time that God's dominion and kingdom extend through time and space, eternity, to the here and now. Because this is the dominion of God. He alone is responsible for the stewardship of everything in the created order. Accordingly, He's established a kingdom by which he alone must exercise authority. And it was a hard lesson for King Nebuchadnezzar to learn. A man who'd never before had to bow the knee, bowed before the king of all kings. And this is a hard lesson for Americanized Christians too who are accustomed to a gospel message that is man-centered instead of God-centered. For the Bible itself declares in Isaiah, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. What a stark contrast to the arrogant, 
haughty nature of man. Today, we understand a kingdom as a nation with a supreme ruler. For Americanized Christians, we find the idea that we are citizens of a kingdom with actual rules and an actual king somewhat disturbing, (laughs) depending on your outlook. Since God himself is sovereign, having dominion and a kingdom over his created beings, it is by nature an everlasting kingdom. And sometimes, honestly, okay, thoughts like that go completely over our head. We get lost in the words and the text and we forget the meaning. Listen, for God to have an utter dominion, power, responsibility, and authority in his kingdom, and to have it be everlasting, means that during your father's time, he was God and king. During your grandfather's time, he was God and king. Back to the earliest you can trace your family tree, he was both God and king. What a glorious thought to know that there is nothing new under the sun to this God and king. Which leads us to the second lesson, that this king is sovereign. Among men... A king has complete rule over his subjects. Now, he wields command over his troops in battle. He extends mercy to whom he will and punishes with great fury those who rebel against his reign. So much more this divine king. The reach of this king extends to all created beings both in the heavenly armies above as well as the denizens of the earth below. There is no realm to which Jesus cannot point his finger and claim mine, as Dr. John Sampson would say. How long will it be before you and I in our American evangelical Christianity accept this truth that a pagan king believed? that God has an everlasting dominion, a generational kingdom, and that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Now, I recognize this isn't the feel-good, I'm okay, you're okay gospel that some people call Christianity. Modern American Christianity is so far removed from true belief that it is difficult to tell people today about the absolute unquestioned authority of this king. But the Bible is very clear, my brothers and sisters, about the very nature of this kingdom. God's will is done. It isn't thwarted by the plans of man, and he alone purposes his will. The Bible records in Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So why is this message of God's ultimate sovereignty over everything in creation so resistant to the mind of man? It's because our very nature is in rebellion to God. 
As Americans, we revel, uh, revel in self-sufficiency. I mean, even our poetry reflects this. I mean, tell me if you've ever heard this one, right? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, right? I mean, this line in Invictus by William Henley forms much of the belief systems of modern Christianity. Many Christians today take King Nebuchadnezzar's attitude and American pride and say to themselves, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And this is far, far different than the ego ami, the great I am presented in John's gospel. Part of the problem that we face as American Christians is the idea that somehow God operates in a democracy where rules like representative government have a say in how the creator deals with his creation. Indeed, the very idea that man is a created being is repugnant to the natural man. It is our natural, fleshly response to say that somehow God isn't the way he says he is. It is our flesh that dictates that he must somehow be conformed to our 21st century American seeker-based Christianity. However, God himself answered this same question to those who questioned Isaiah. You have turned things upside down. As if the potter were regarded as clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he didn't make me. Can the pottery say of the potter, he has no understanding? Fortunately, creator of all the universe isn't a malevolent force or an impersonal doddering fool who just simply created and then left his creation. No. We also learn from this God of the Bible the most important lesson of all. The third lesson by which we can call him Abba, Father. The third lesson is all his works are right and his ways are just. While you and I may disagree on other things, we will always agree that all of God's works are right and his ways are just. Because he has an everlasting kingdom and dominion with responsibility to care for his children, his will is done. His authority, unquestioned. And we don't always know the ways by which he accomplishes his purposes through the tapestries of time. But we know how faithful God is by how unfaithful we are. You see, we deal with God corruptly before we are granted repentance and forgiveness through Christ. And don't be mistaken, okay? It's not like the unregenerate are on a truth quest. Most people are on a self-quest. It's always about themselves and their selfish ambitions. But the call of Christ is to come and die.
Man is absolutely faithless, a prisoner, a captive of sin. But the psalmist records, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And that's the problem. We see that the word of the Lord is upright and that his work is done in faithfulness. Oh, he loves righteousness and justice and the earth itself is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And then we take a good look at ourselves. <laughs> Behind all the New Year's resolutions and the New Year, New Me pledges, Boy, we see the same old, damaged, crazy, hairy, dew-drinking, grass-eating man you were last year. And it's hard. It's hard for us to comprehend this vast love by which he first loved us, when even our best works are as filthy rags. And don't miss this important point, brothers and sisters. The Bible said in Isaiah that even the best deeds by guilty men are no better than a woman's ministration pad after it's been used. That's how filthy and disgusting you are to God. Without his grace, without his decision, you would not be a part of his kingdom. It is by his bloody work on the cross that allows you to stand within the presence of God. Ephesians records that he chose us even before the foundations of the world. How could we have any part or glory in the restoration of our sanity or the regeneration of our souls? Finally, brothers, I'd like to turn your attention to the book of Revelation, the 15th chapter, verses 3 through 4. It says, And they sing the song of Moses, servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord? And glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. You see, my friends, you might not understand how this all works together. I can assure you, however, that it does. All things work together for who? For those that love the Lord. That's right. God works all things together, it says. Not me. Not you. God works them together. All the nations will come and worship him. For his righteous acts have been revealed. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together today. I pray that you would bless the teaching of your word that's gone out. I pray that your will would be done amongst the people who've heard this message today. 
I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct their steps on this day and every day forward until you call them home. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you.